When you look at a cross, what comes to your mind? You know, when some people see a cross, they see it as kind of just a religious symbol or religious relic you might find in a church or someplace like that. Some people just see, you know, a piece of jewelry that may, maybe something that you like, something that you wear. Others see a, a, a symbol of hope for people that are in trauma or in difficult situations. Some people see it as just a, a personal expression of their faith. Uh, and then, of course, there are some people that just see the cross as just an historic artifact, something that Romans use to, uh, to execute criminals. But when, when a Christian looks at the cross, it, it has some important meaning to it. And that's really what I want to talk about today. What does a cross really mean? And we are in a series called Anchored. We've been looking at seven core doctrines of the church. We looked at the doctrine of God's word. We looked at the doctrine of God proper. We looked at uh, the doctrine of man last week. And today we're looking at the doctrine of the cross. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, just open it up now with me. Everybody open up your Bible. There should be one you'll see if you didn't bring one. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. The, uh, the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Romans. Uh, Paul was a, a rabbi who was um, an intellectual a leader who hated Christians, but yet had an encounter with the risen Jesus that changed his life. He went on to write 20, uh, 14 of the 27, 13 of the 27 uh, books in our New Testament, planted churches all over the world. He wrote, wrote the book of Romans roughly about 25 years after the death of Jesus. And the book of Romans is really the clearest and most systematic explanation of Christian doctrine, particularly the doctrine of salvation. In fact, I believe it was Martin Luther who called the book of Romans the purest gospel. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to look at just a few verses in Romans chapter 3 that are very important. Before, before we get to Romans 3, I got to give you a little on-ramp so that you understand what Paul is saying in Romans 3 because you got a little overview of what he said in chapters 1 and 2. So I, I think I do this in about 30 seconds. All right, so uh, hang with me. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes an argument that the pagan world is under the judgment of God because they have not glorified God. They've worshiped idols. They've, they've given themselves to pagan practices and sexual immorality, all kinds of perversion and so on, that their hearts and minds are darkened, and they've rejected God, and God's wrath is coming against them. Now, I'm sure that when he, that first chapter was read, you know, in the church, there probably somebody like, amen, amen. That's right, those people out there, they're going to get it, you know, because it's bad out there, and they probably got us some of those, right? Then he gets to chapter 2, <laughs> and in chapter 2, he focuses on the people in the pew, and he says, oh, by the way, you religious people, you're getting it too. You're, you religious people, the wrath of God is against you also because, you know what? You do the very same thing these guys do. You just cover it up better. And you cover it with this kind of religious thing, but your, your hypocrisy is offensive to God. And you've hardened your heart and you miss the point and you're trusting in all your religious practices. And so, again, the wrath of God is against you. Now, I'm sure the congregation got a little quieter when he got to that chapter. And then he gets to chapter 3. 
And in chapter 3, he concludes then that it doesn't matter if you're irreligious or you're religious. It doesn't matter if you're pagan or you're a pew-sitter, that every person is a sinner under the wrath of God. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, this is his summation. This is his conclusion. There is no one righteous, not even one. And with that, the gavel comes down on all of the human race. The gavel comes down. Guilty is charged. Everyone has sinned against God and is under the wrath of God. Now, just think about that for a minute. If that's really true, that's really true. No matter how good you try to be, no matter what you're doing and what you know, there's nothing you can do. You're under the wrath of God. Then that's a pretty sobering reality. Would you agree with that? And so that kind of begs the next question. Well, then how can anybody be right with God? How can anybody be right with God? And of course, this is the age-old question. Job in Job chapter 9. Job asked that very question in verse 2. He said, how can a person be right with God? It's not only the age-old question. It's the most important question. It's more important than what college am I going to go to. It's more important than who I'm going to marry. It's more important than how many kids we're going to have or should we take that job in Chicago. It's more important than any of that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's really about life and death. It's about where you're going to spend eternity. And the moment after you die, nothing else will matter other than how you answer this one question. Are you right with God? And so because of the gravity of that question, the Apostle Paul weighs in these six verses, just a chunk, six verses. He explains the answer to that question. How is a person right with God? Now, let me just, before we get into it, let me put a little warning sign here. We're going to wade into the deep end of the pool today. Are you ready? We're not going to be in the baby end of the pool. We're going to wade down the deep end of the pool. And we're going to deal with heavy words and theological terms that uh, you need to understand and you need to know. And I can remember when I was in seminary and I did a study on this passage, how it radically shifted my understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. And I, my prayer is that when we're finished here today, that you see the cross differently because you understand what Jesus did for you on the cross. So let's look at it together. Uh, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Uh, through 26. This is the word of God. Amen? Amen. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed and God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Now, when you just look at this passage just kind of in a broad stroke, the word righteous or righteousness appears anywhere between four and six times. 
So the theme that runs through this passage is about righteousness. Now, when we, we hear the word righteous, we don't use that word very often anymore. You know, we don't really use the word righteous that often. Uh, usually if we do, it's almost in a negative sense, like, oh, well, they're so self-righteous, right? Or something like that. So we don't, we don't really grasp that. But the, but the word righteous here, you could write in the margin, is dikaios. Dikaios means to be right, to be just, to be good, to be holy, to be perfect. That's what it means. So God is righteous, right? He's perfect. He's altogether just, altogether right, always just. That is who he is, and we are not. We have sinned against God. We, we've settled that question in verse 3. And so the question is, how can, how can I be righteous? How can I be right in God's sight? That's what he's talking about. And I want to give you a couple of thoughts to write down to help us explain how to be right with God. All right? Here's the first one. Once you jot this down, uh, you can't make yourself righteous. You can't make yourself righteous. Look again at verse 21. He said, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Underline the words, apart from the law. Now, this was really... You know, probably when this was first read, uh, if you had a Jewish background, you would have gone, <gasps> all right, you, you, would have, you would have gasped at that phrase. Because every Jewish kid from the very beginning, the very first words a Jewish child would say were the words of the Torah. When they learned to read and write, they learned to read and write by reading and writing the Torah. They memorized the Torah. By the time they were uh, 10 or 12 years old, they had the first five books memorized. I mean, they were saturated in the Torah. And they were taught over and over and over that you have to obey all the laws of God to be accepted by God. You had to obey all the law. You had to follow the law. You had to not break one. You had to be, you had to really follow the law. And when you did that, you earned, you established yourself as righteous before God. You earned your righteousness by doing the right things. Okay. Now you may say, well, you know, is that really, is that what people really believe today? Actually, yes. Uh, I was on a, uh, I was flipping through uh, social media this week, and I came across a video by Dennis Prager. Some of you are familiar with Dennis Prager. He puts out lots and lots of videos, uh, very popular among college campuses, uh, on college campuses. And um, Prager, in fact, his videos have been viewed over 7 billion times. So this is a lot of, uh, a lot of people listen to Dennis Prager. And Dennis put up this, this video on the biggest difference between Judaism and Christianity. Caught my attention, of course. And so I listened to it. I put a link of that in the notes if you want to link to it. Four-minute little video. Basically, this is what Dennis Prager said. Dennis Prager said, based on the viewpoint, the Jewish viewpoint perspective, he said, quote, you earn your salvation, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, God judges a person by their behavior, not by their faith, end quote. Now, from Prager's perspective, you know, it's just about how good you can be. And that's what God judges you by, how good you can be. Now, there's not much difference between what he's saying here on YouTube and what a Paul was dealing with back in his day. No, no change really at all. And by, I, I know a lot of people that agree with Prager and, and they're not Jewish. 
You talk to just the average guy at, at work, the average lady, that, a client that you have, and you say, well, you know, how does God uh, let a person into heaven? And they would probably say something like this. Well, you know, uh, I, I think it's just, you know, you try to be a good person. You know, I try to be a good person. I try to be a good mom, a good dad. I, I try to uh, treat people well. I try to, you know, I, I know I've done some things wrong, but I'm trying to do better things, and hopefully things will weigh off in my, in my favor. Or some may even up it a little bit and say, well, you know what, I, I went to church when I was a kid or I was confirmed at this age or I was baptized as an infant or I walked an aisle when I was at this camp or whatever the thing may be. Or my, my, my parents were really active in the church. I got an uncle that was a preacher somewhere, you know, that, you know so I, I, we attended this denomination. People use all this kind of stuff to somehow say that because of the goodness that I have done or the religious things that I have done, that I'm okay. I'm good, preacher. Don't worry about me. Everything's good because, because I'm basically all right. And what Paul is saying here is that you cannot get there by your own goodness. The righteousness of God that comes to you is not by works. It's apart from uh, obedience to the law. It's, it's apart from that. In fact, Jesus weighed in on this uh, directly. You might write in the barge of your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus responds to this issue about, how, about being good. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, you know, the Pharisees were like, the professionals, right? They were, they were like, you know, they, they went to the seminary, they, they dressed a certain way, all they did, they didn't work a, a job, they just, all they did was study, study the Bible and pray, and that was it. I mean, that's, it, it would be like me saying, okay, let's, unless you're more religious than a Hasidic Jew, that that's all they do, is be at the, at the Western Wall and pray all day long. Unless you're better than them, you'll never even see heaven. Now you're like, whoa, that, that, whoa, that's, I don't know if anybody in this room would match that standard, right? But then Jesus raises the standard from there. And if you continue reading in Matthew 5, he says, oh, by the way, it's not enough that you not murder somebody. You can't even have an angry thought towards somebody. And by the way, it's not enough that you didn't commit adultery. You can't even have one lustful thought toward another person. And oh, by the way, it's not enough that you love your neighbor. You also have to love your enemies, and you get to the point where that just the standard is getting so high and high and high that it's beyond your grasp. And you say, what are you saying, Jesus? And he says it plainly in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to know what the standard is? You got to be perfect. Anybody in here reach that? No. And now you know. Why Paul wrote in Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one, not even one. There's no one who can get to heaven. There's no one that can be right with God based on their own goodness. I heard it put uh, recently that it's like you see a lamb grazing in a field and you think, look at how white that wool is. Look at how beautiful that wool is. Look at how pure that lamb's wool is. And then it begins to snow. And once the snow covers the ground, you see that lamb in contrast to the pure driven snow and you realize how dirty it really is. Listen, you may look in your mirror and say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm all right. You know, I got it going on uh, compared to who? Right? 
Compared to, I'm better than that guy. You know, I didn't, you know, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not a this, that, the other. But, but compared to the purity of God's holiness, every single one of us falls short. So he says, listen, the righteousness of God that he wants to give you is apart from the law. You can't get there by earning it. And by the way, he says, and, and this is not anything new. The law and the prophets have been testifying to this. The whole Old Testament's been telling you that you can't get there by your own works. And so that, that really kind of brings up another question. Well, then if I, if I can't be right with God by how good I am, then how do I get right with God? And that brings us to the second point. I want you to write this down. Righteousness comes through faith. Righteousness comes through faith. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so he's saying you don't get there by earning it, all right? So you with me? You don't get there by earning it, so how do you get there? It comes through faith. I want you to circle the words through faith, all right? Circle those words. It comes through faith as opposed to works. It comes through faith. Now, you might say, well, Craig, what exactly is faith? This is a great place to just kind of stop and explain what I mean by faith. Faith is not just believing the right things faith or intellectual knowledge. It's not just that you hope things are going to work out. Faith, listen, is a confident trust in a person or a thing. A confident trust in a person or a thing. A confident trust in someone or something. That's faith. And you might say, well, Craig, see, that's my problem. See, that's my problem with you Christians, right? Because you want me to trust in this God that I can't even see. I just can't do that, man. I just can't, I just can't trust in a God that I cannot see. And my response would be, you do it all the time. You, you have a lot of faith. You exercise a lot of faith, man. Anybody riding a plane? Do you know that pilot? No, no. You don't know where he was or what he did or what his qualifications are. Did he get a C or a D, you know, in pilot school? You have no idea. You don't know about the mechanics that are supposed to make sure that thing is operating right, to make the wings stay on. You know, you don't know how that manufacturer uh, did that or their faults and, and flaws in the, you don't know any of that. And yet you get on that, you, you pay them to get on the plane and they're going to take you up 30,000 feet without a parachute. Man, that's faith. That is real faith. Uh, you ever, ever gone to surgery? Ever had a surgery? Do you really know that surgeon? Do you really know that anesthesiologist? Do you really know those people in there? And yet some of you, you literally let them open up your chest and stop your heart. And you don't even know these people. And that's crazy faith. Have you ever ridden in a car with a teenager driving? <laughs> crazy faith. Crazy faith. Uh, here, here's my point. You exercise faith all the time. And you, listen, you exercise faith with faulty human people that make mistakes all the time. But you can't trust an eternal God that's perfect. He said, this righteousness God gives you comes through faith. Now notice the next phrase, comes through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That this faith comes in Christ. The object of our faith is Christ. Listen to me, this, this is really important. I'm gonna skip this over. Your faith is not in your church, 
Your faith is not in your denomination. Your faith is not in your pastor. Your faith is not in, your, in, in your, what your parents raised you, right? Your faith is in a person. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to put a bookmark there because I'm going to come back to that in just a minute and explain why Jesus. But notice, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then I love this last part. Circle this, to all who believe. To all who believe. I just love that. You know what I love about that? I love the all part. To all who believe. All right, we're going to say that together. To all who believe, but I want you to really emphasize the all part. Ready? One, two, three. To all who believe. I love that. To all. That means, hey man, this means that no matter what has happened, no matter how far from God you are, maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I just feel a trillion miles away from God. Maybe you go, Craig, but you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand where I've been. You don't understand, man, the mess that I made in my life. You don't understand what, what happened to me. You don't, I understand that. I, but, but it doesn't matter because all, this door of the gospel, this door of salvation is swinging open wide to all who believe in the Lord Jesus. It's why we plant churches. It's why, we, we, why I share the gospel every week. I get red faced, my veins bulge out. Why? Why am I doing this? Because I'm imploring you to come to faith in Jesus because I believe it's open to all even to you. And listen, at the size of this crowd today, there's some of you in this room and you've grown up going to church and you, you know all the right things, but you have never truly been saved by grace in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you today, you can, you can be right with God. It's open for you right now. It's open for you. And then Paul goes on to say, for there's no distinction Distinction between the pagan or the pew sitter. There's no distinction. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're, where you grew up or, or who you are or what religious label you put on. There is no distinction. We like to distinguish people and think one's better than the other. No, no. The, everyone is the same. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us need a Savior. Now, Paul goes on to Uh, describe salvation with two theological words. So these are important, so I'm going to unpack them for you because you need to understand the gravity of them. I want you to put a box around. The first word is justified. So I want you to box, put that in a box, justified in your Bible, and then also the word redeemed, put that, uh, box that in your Bible. Let's take those one at a time. The word justified is a legal term, and it simply means a pronouncement of innocence. A pronouncement that you are right with God. It, when you come to faith in Jesus, you're like, Lord, I just confess my sin. I, I just cry out to you, God, have mercy on me. In that moment, God declares you right. He declares you just. He declares you perfect, right? And I was trying to think about pronouncement. And when do we see a pronouncement that changes things? And it came to me that every wedding this happens. I've done a lot of weddings, all right? And they're all kind of the same, right? You got this, uh, this groom, he's coming down. He's kind of nervy down here at the beginning. You know, he's all nervous, you know, and he emotionally got his dudes with him. And then the bridesmaids come down and then the bride comes down. She looks amazing. She's walking down the aisle with her dad who's having an out-of-body experience at the moment. <laughs> what am I doing? And they get down here and the preacher's going to preach a short little sermon and then they're going to do some rings and they're going to do some vows and then they're going to do something, you know, they're going to tie a knot, they're going to light a candle, they're going to release doves, I don't know, they're going to do something like that. 
And then at the very end, everything builds up to this one thing at the very end. And none of that matters until you get to this thing at the very end where the pastor makes a statement, I pronounce you husband and wife. And in that moment, in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of God, you're married. You are now one. It's a pronouncement of something that will never change. Now that's what happens when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You cry out to him. He pronounces you forgiven. He pronounces you just and right. In fact, did you know that if you stand in criminal court today in the United States, the court will never pronounce a person innocent. You are only found guilty or not guilty. The reason why is because there is a presumption of innocence in the United States. You're presumed to be innocent until you're found guilty. Now that wasn't the case in Roman court where you were presumed to be guilty until you were proven to be innocent. But in the United States, the court can never pronounce you innocent. But I want you to know that that's exactly what God does. When a sinner comes to him in saving faith and says, Lord, please forgive me. At that moment, he says, I declare you innocent. I declare you righteous. I declare you just. I declare you holy. I don't see any sin anymore. I declare you right with me. That's an amazing thing. Anybody in this room happy about that? Amen. Absolutely celebrate that right now. So justified. Somebody said justified means God treats me just as if I had never sinned. Uh, the second word is redeemed. And the word redeemed there is a, really a marketplace term. It means to be bought back. Uh, back in ancient times, they had a thing called debtor's prison. And if you didn't pay your debts, then, then you would go thrown in jail, right? And then you hope somebody else would uh, go, do a GoFundMe account or something. You know, I'd try to raise money uh, to get you out. And then if somebody paid your debt, then you were freed from that prison. This is very much in the mind of the people that heard this. Now, that's exactly what happens when a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They cry out for mercy on, based on the finished work of Jesus and, and that person is freed. Your sin is no longer holding you back. You're no longer, there's no longer a ledger of all the things you've done wrong. You're just, you're, your debt's been paid. It's free, you're free to go. You're free in Christ. You're free from the power of sin. You're free from the penalty of sin. And one day you're going to be free from the very presence of sin when you're in heaven. Freed. You know, I love that song Big Daddy Weave used to say, you know, I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. And he says, I'm not who I used to be. I just love that song because that's so true. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're not the same person. You've been freed from all that guilt and all that shame that you've been carrying around your whole life. You're freed. Now, this is a description of what a person is when they come to faith in Jesus, justified and redeemed. Now, you might say, uh, objection, objection. I, I got a problem with that, Pete, preacher. I mean, like, okay, well, what, what problem could you possibly have with that? You know, you're, wait a minute, you're, you're telling me, let me get my mind around it. You're telling me that I can, this could be this awful person over here. There's a terrible, horrible person. They've done terrible, horrible things. And then they just come to faith in Jesus Christ and then whoop, all their sin's gone. So what are you telling me? I mean, what about all the terrible things that they did? Surely God's gonna have to deal with that stuff that they did. 
God, uh, you tell me God's just, you tell me God's fair, you tell me God that, that has to punish sin, and yet you're just gonna, he's just gonna wave that off? You know, I've seen some of you at a basketball game, right? Some of you at a basketball game, you see a, a referee that doesn't call a foul, an egregious foul, and you come unglued, right? Kind of like this person right here that we caught on video. Yeah. Even the pastors can come unglued. Or maybe you're following some case and you know somebody's guilty and yet somehow they get off, you know, because they know somebody or they pay off the judge or what, just corruption. And you're like, where's justice? Where's the payment? And you know what? God doesn't just wave off your sin. He just put it on someone else. He put it on Jesus. And that leads us to the third thing. You can't make yourself righteous. The righteousness comes through faith. And here's the last one. Write this down. Jesus gives you his righteousness. Jesus gives you his righteousness. Look at verse 25. God presented him, uh, right to the margin there, Jesus. God presented him, that is Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Now stop right there. Some of your Bibles say the word atoning sacrifice. Some of your Bibles will use the word propitiation. Anybody here got a Bible? Raise up if you got the word propitiation. All right, very good. Propitiation is a great theological term. Uh, it, it really comes from the Greek word hilasterion, which means, get this, follow me, it means payment to satisfy the justice and wrath of God. Payment to satisfy the justice and wrath of God against sin. Now listen, the Jewish people understood this term because that whole day of it. In Leviticus chapter 16, it clearly tells us about the day of atonement. The day of atonement, when the high priest would gather all the people of Israel together at the temple. It was a solemn day. Still today, Yom Kippur is practiced by the Jewish people, though not as they once did. But Yom Kippur is considered the holiest of days, still today. And in, in biblical times, they would gather all of Israel together and the high priest would come out before the people being dressed in his, uh, in, in, his, in his robe and having been purified ceremonially. He stands to mediate between God and man. And he brings out two goats. And with one goat, he slaughters the goat and offers this goat as a sacrifice for sin. And he will take the blood of that goat and he will put it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, a very special part of it called the mercy seat. And when God sees the blood of the sacrifice for sin on the mercy seat, God sees that that blood is payment for the sin of the people. And then the high priest would come back before the people and I just kind of envision his hands are still bloody with that sacrifice and he will put his hands on that second goat as if transferring all the sins of the people onto this goat and then that goat will be led off into the wilderness to never return again 
And it's almost as if as that goat leaves the building, that there goes the sin. There goes all my wickedness. There goes, see, they knew they couldn't even keep the law. They knew they tried and they tried to keep the law, but they couldn't keep it. They needed something and someone to pay the penalty for their sin. And every year they go through the ritual, every year they know in their heart that this isn't doing it. If it did, we'd just do it once. But they have to do it over and over, hoping that one day somehow they could be free from their sin. And then came Jesus. Then came Jesus. Then came Jesus. And Jesus came as that sacrifice for you and for me. You see, God didn't wave off your sin. He just put it on Jesus. It's, a, it's like the judge that, that slams a gavel down. Guilty as charged. You've sinned against me. The penalty is death. That very same judge takes off his robe and steps down and takes your place and dies in your place. That's the gospel. And in Jesus Christ, he is taking your place. There is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane praying. When he is arrested, he is taking your place. There is Jesus when he's on trial with the religious leaders and they're mocking him and they're slapping him and they blindfolded him and they're interrogating him. He's taking your place. There is Jesus when he stands before Pilate, the Roman governor, and he says, are you really a king? He is taking your place. There is Jesus when he is extended and tied onto that pole and they're ripping his back, blood pooling by the scourging. He's taking your place. There is Jesus as he carries his cross up Calvary's hill. He's taking your place. There is Jesus when he is nailed onto that cross, suspended between heaven and earth. He's taking your place. There is Jesus as he groans and he suffers the wrath of God poured out on sinners. He is taking your place. There is Jesus when he declared it with his last words, it is finished, which means paid in full. He is taking your place. You wonder what the cross is about? It's about Jesus taking your place. But not only does he take your place and pay for your sin, but he removes it. He removes your sin from you. Just like that goat is removed and like sent into the wilderness, never to return again. And they, when they saw the goat go, they're like, there goes our sin. When, when you see Jesus dying on the cross, He's removing your sin from you. I love what Psalm 103 verse 12 says. He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, 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 Hebrews 8, 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. Jesus is the one that takes away our sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can take your place. And, I just, and Paul makes it clear that those who died before the time of Christ were saved looking forward to the cross, looking forward to the Messiah who would come and take our place. And those who die after the cross are saved looking back on what Jesus Christ has done. The cross is a centerpiece of human history and the cross is what divides all people. Those who accept him and those who reject him. And notice it says here, verse 26, why he did this. So that God, look at so that he would be righteous, God would be righteous, and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. He's not waving off your sin. He's dealing with it. He's going to be fully right in punishing sin, but also free 
to forgive you and make you righteous. Jesus will take on all your sin and you will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And when we stand before the throne in him complete, Jesus died, my debt to pay. That is what our hope is, that Jesus will die for us. Our lips will never fail to repeat. This brings us back to the cross. I, I start off asking the question, what do, you, what do you see when you see the cross? When you see the cross, for Christians, we remember what Jesus did on the cross. That Jesus paid our penalty. He took our place. He removed our sin. And by faith, we place our trust and hope in Jesus. And he declares us to be right, even though we are not. And he removes our sin from us and says, you're free. You're a new person. And that is hope. So on Christmas Eve in 1971, Julianne Cupcup boarded a plane in Lima, Peru, just after her graduation to go be with her father for the holidays. She was excited to go and she was glad that she made it on the plane because it was a packed flight. However, during that flight, the plane was tragically struck by lightning and literally began to come apart in the air. Julianne was sucked out of the fuselage and found herself in a moment falling to the ground. Uh, she just remembers what the treetops looked like from that perspective as she blacked out. When she woke up, she was still strapped to her seat and she was on the bottom of the Peruvian jungle. And miraculously, she... She survived that great fall without really any serious injury. She had a concussion. She had scrapes on her arm and a broken collarbone. But outside of that, she was okay. And so she realized that she had to seek help. She remembered what her father told her, that if you're ever lost in the jungle, you need to look for water because where there's water, there's people. And so she said she began to search for a river and she found a river. And get this, for 10 days, this 17-year-old girl survived in the Peruvian jungle all alone, following a river. Till finally she came up upon a shack for a fisherman uh, who saw her and who ultimately rescued her and got her uh, to safety. Now movies have been written about her, books have been written about her survival. And it is a miraculous story. But what a lot of times is not mentioned is that there were other people that did survive the fall from the plane as well. There were about 14 other people out of the 90 on board that survived. And yet they adopted a different strategy. Their strategy was we're going to sit and we're going to wait. And surely someone will come to us. We're just going to sit here and we're going to wait for people to find us. And all those who adopted that strategy died. Everyone. Now, you could speculate what was the difference between how Julianne responded and these responded, and lots have been written about that. But there's one thing that is very obvious that I want to point out is that the people that adopted the sit and wait strategy put their hope in a strategy 
that failed. But Julianne abandoned that strategy. And she said, I have to go to someone who can save me. Now, I tell you that because there are people in this room and you're adopting the strategy that I'm okay, that I'm good enough, that I, I've done some good things and I, and I you know God's going to judge and he's going to see my good and my bad and that it's going to weigh in my direction and I'm, I'm going to make it okay. And that is a failed strategy. You will not be right with God by trusting in yourself. The only way you can be right with God is to go to the one who can save you. And that is Jesus Christ who took your place. So today is the day for you to choose. Won't you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Best I know how I've tried to communicate the gospel as clearly as I can. But today is a time for you to decide. What strategy are you adopting? And maybe you're here today and you realize you're convicted right now. You know your Holy Spirit is convicting you. Hey, you've sinned against God. You have never placed your trust in Jesus. You're not different. You've never come really to confess your sin before God and seen change in your life. And and you know it. And the Holy Spirit's convicting you. It's happening right now. And this is your moment to say yes. How privileged you are to hear the gospel. How privileged you are to have an opportunity to respond. But you have to respond. Either receive him or reject him. And if you're here today, you say, Pastor, I want Jesus. Man, I want to run to Christ. I want to place my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that. But if you're here today and you say, that's me, just heads bowed, nobody looking around, just lift up your hand. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ today. Today I need Jesus. Lift up your hand where I can see it. I'm going to call you out. All right, thank you, thank you. I'm not calling you out. I just want to know. All right, thank you. Lift up your hand, Pastor. All right, thank you, thank you. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ. God's, thank you. God's moving in my heart. Lift up your hand. All right. Thank you. Lift up your hand. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. You put your hand down now. Just right where you are. Just pray this simple prayer. The Lord knows your heart. You're calling on the name of the Lord. The Bible says those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So just pray this with me, dear Lord. I know I've sinned against you. I know I cannot save myself. But I believe Jesus died on a cross for me. I believe he rose again from the dead. And so I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean. Please make me new. I don't trust in myself. I put all my hope in Jesus who died in my place. Lord, thank you for loving me. And I choose to follow you all the days of my life. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. Thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, I pray that for those of us who know you, that we would live with gratitude, God, for all that you've done for us. Every time we see a cross, we remember Jesus, what you did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.